Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Blinded by extreme solipsism, it is practically impossible for Americans to recognize, let alone obey, correct words spoken on the lips of people we consider wrong or evil. Where God uses the hypocrisy of his followers to enlighten the world, we use the same to destroy it, like childish teenagers reveling in stupidity and empty rebellion, we use the hypocrisy of others to avoid accountability for our own. We embrace destruction to prove that we don't have to listen. Thankfully, Jesus addressed this sin long before there was a United States, and his words will stand long after we are gone. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated on the chair of Moses, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. If ever there were a New Year's pledge that could save the country, this is it. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verses 1 to 4. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 361 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The first impediment to teaching is self-consciousness, as though the teacher is a reference. And that's why we've said again and again, teaching is a job that must be done. And if you have the knowledge to teach, you must stand up and deliver that knowledge to the best of your ability, as clearly as possible, to as many as are willing to listen. The fact that you are a sinner, the fact that you are unrighteous, the fact that you do not practice what you preach, is your problem, and it will be dealt with when the Lord comes. But it has no bearing whatsoever on your duty to teach. If you are a student of a teacher who teaches the right thing, and acts against that very teaching, what are you supposed to do as the student? Do you dump the teacher and therefore the teaching bathwater with that baby? Or do you adhere to the teaching and tolerate the teacher because the teacher then functions within the context of this teaching? And the teacher is the means by which you receive this teaching, and so the teaching itself makes you deal with this teacher in a particular way. The teaching forces us to deal with the teacher because we're not allowed to dump the teaching. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. It is interesting 
that he does not say, do what the Sadducees say. This is tacit admission by the author that the Sadducees are wrong, that the prosperity gospel is not the wisdom of Moses, that the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching the correct thing. Does that mean that all the Pharisees were great guys? How could it mean that? When the writers themselves are telling you how rotten they are and how rotten their colleagues are, does that mean that it's good that they're rotten? As Paul would say, God forbid. They're not off the hook because their sin created an opportunity for us to hear the wisdom of Moses. They're under condemnation, but remains the fact that what they shared with us is the wisdom of Moses. So there's a kind of parallel between Israel and the Pharisees in that sense. In the Pauline school, are you better off because you're a Pharisee or a scribe? Are you better off because the Jews have received the wisdom of Moses? You're better off if you submit to that wisdom, but does it make you better than the Gentiles? Does it set the Pharisee above everybody else? It's a beautiful text, Rich. You bring out such an important point, Father, that on the one hand, Jesus does not hold up the Sadducees or the Herodians as examples in any way, but holds up the Pharisees and the scribes as examples, not in the way that we think of examples, not do like them, because they sit in Moses' seat, which means two things. One, Moses is our teacher, Rabbeinu, which is what the rabbis would call Moses, our teacher. But secondly, in the Torah, in the first five books, he was the ultimate judge on earth who judged according to this very teaching that he gave the people. And, you know, he got too busy having to adjudicate, so he had to, like, create more judges and that sort of thing. That happens in the first five books. But that is the role of Moses. It's to give the teaching and to adjudicate this. And we talked about this. The Sadducees were teaching that there was no resurrection, that past Deuteronomy, Scripture has less canonical authority. They believe in establishing power on earth, and that's really it. There is no final account. It's a prosperity gospel where if you do correctly on earth, you will receive on earth. If you do incorrectly on earth, you'll receive incorrectly on earth. And therefore, you can tell the morality of people by their station. I mean, it's a kind of caste system where you can see who's blessed by how good their station is. The Sadducees would say then that we don't need a resurrection. The resurrection is not part of the theology. You should listen to us because we're in this position, because God has blessed us. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection, so they believe that there is a final account, but that doesn't mean they're any less self-righteous. What I find really fascinating about these chapters is that Jesus is hitting against each group because of their self-righteousness. On the one hand, he's able to marginalize the Sadducees and all of their prosperity teaching. But on the other hand, after Jesus puts the thumb in the eye of the scribes and the Pharisees and all of his disciples want to say, yeah, go get him, Jesus. Then Jesus says, do exactly what they tell you to do. That is terrible. It's like if your dad went and chewed out your teacher in front of you and then turned to you and said, if I ever hear from your teacher that you messed up, it's going to be worse for you. 
Ah, if you were a kid, you'd feel awful if your dad did that. This is what Jesus did because you're bound anytime. Even a messed up guy like a Pharisee or a scribe who's self-righteous and blah, blah, blah. Once they speak Moses' word, you bow, you submit, and you do it. Whether you have to do it while grinding your teeth or not, doesn't matter. You go and you do it. This is the pure genius of the biblical school. Matthew is telling you who is correct in the argument without taking a side. He's still putting everybody down. That's the thing in the book of Job. Everybody, including Job, is wrong. Only God is right. It's pure genius. The Americans could learn a lot from this text because they have their political arguments and they want to pick a winning side. But nobody is the winner. Knowledge is the winner. The facts on the ground are the winner. Whatever is there is what wins, not what we think and not any individual or group of people. It is the teaching of God that is at stake, not the ego of the Pharisee. Because the follow-up question that Matthew wants you to ask when you're studying Paul and then revisiting Matthew is, what advantage is there then in being a Pharisee? There's a ton of advantage because of the oracles of God, the law of Moses, And if you understand that the law of Moses is the treasure, if you understand that it is the pearl, if you are here for the teaching, then you would look at the Pharisee as one seated in a place of honor in his discreditation. In being discredited, in the eyes of a scriptural person, the Pharisee is being honored the way the Jews are honored. It is an honor for God to use your sin to teach, but that doesn't make you better than the others. It's excellent scriptural argumentation. You're right, because this is how you do it in the classroom, too. I mean, the wrong answer that's closer to the right answer you spend a lot more time on than the one that's way off in left field. The Pharisees and scribes are close enough because they understand the written teaching as the basis of the whole deal. Jesus and the Pharisees agree on this point. They agree on the function of God's word and the function of the teaching. I mean, these are the scribes, and their job is copying manuscripts, and their job is to be experts in the law and experts in the teaching. That's why Jesus can poke at them and say, have you never read? But don't do like they do, because they don't do what they say you're supposed to do. Lots of people can teach this teaching, They can speak this teaching because it's written. You just have to read it. But to carry it out, even the scribes and the Pharisees are not able to carry it out. And this is the thing. It's even worse than when your dad chews out the teacher. I expect you, son, to act even better than this teacher. It's not enough to be correct. It's not enough for a highly educated East Coast liberal to explain why poor white people are wrong. It's not enough. It doesn't help to call them names and say they're racist. That's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Your education is great, and when you speak, we learn. But man, when you actually live your life, I don't see anything admirable. Now, the sin of those who are crying hypocrisy about our politicians and the liberal elite and all of that nonsense and the culture war, their sin is that 
they are disobeying Matthew. Because if what the person you recognize as a hypocrite says is correct, your first duty is to listen to what they're saying and ignore what they're doing. Because we all know what Jesus is telling us, that they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. We know they're hypocrites, but the law of Moses is the only path to life and wisdom. So in your desire to rebel against their hypocrisy, are you going to burn down the country? Sometimes we hear a political candidate or figure and what they're saying is correct, but the way they act and the way they live is terrible. But because they're saying the correct thing, we're okay with that. Sometimes there are people who say awful things, a political candidate who is teaching a deplorable teaching, but occasionally they'll perform actions that look nice or have some kind of symbolic value. It's all a distraction what tribe they're in, how they act, all this kind of thing. We have to listen to the teaching. And the teaching that they teach, then we measure against Scripture. That's it. Sometimes we say, oh, well, we can have a terrible leader, but God can still use terrible leaders, blah, blah, blah. Of course, God's going to use whatever leader he wants. But as soon as you follow that terrible leader, then there's a problem. So we need to be careful about who we follow, not based on whether they follow their own teaching or not, but based on whether their teaching is correct or not. Paul says, you know, if whatever I say contradicts the gospel, then whatever I say is anathema. If, <laughs> if we have a political leader who's saying something correct, then it's out of Scripture. If he says something incorrect, it's not in Scripture. So we can just take a shortcut and just follow what Scripture says, and we don't have to pay as much attention to the politicians. There's a wrong assumption here, by the way, that it's bad to tie heavy burdens on people. That's not what Matthew's saying. Matthew is saying that they tie heavy burdens, but they themselves are lazy. It doesn't mean that the burdens are incorrect. That's, again, the clever scriptural argument. The person above you might be a hypocrite. They might be a rotten person. They might be doing all sorts of terrible things. But if what they tell you to do, even if it's burdensome, if what they tell you to do is correct, you have to do it because it's correct according to the law of Moses. So it might really bother you as an East Coast liberal when a Republican says something correct about Scripture. It might really irritate you because you think that that Republican doesn't care about the poor. That's irrelevant. They may not care about the poor, but if what they said is correct according to Scripture, you're bound by it. It's dislodging your ego and the ego of the teacher from the matter at hand, which is the content of the law of Moses to which we are invited to submit through the New Testament. Because I know some of you are having a crisis about the law because you can't escape this cockamamie idea about the law and the Spirit. Just forget the Reformation. Just hit undo and hear Scripture. The New Testament is an invitation for all of the nations to submit to the Messiah who rules by the decree of his Father through the law of Moses. 
you are being gathered on Mount Zion here in Matthew to become subject to the law of the kingdom, which is contained in the Pentateuch. I was thinking about this idea that I hear sometimes among Christians when I start talking about the duty that we have as slaves of our Father, of this teaching. They get very nervous because they think of grace as something free, or the kingdom as something free. And I kept thinking back to what we've been reading in Matthew and how the kingdom is like a field, or like a fisherman, or like a shepherd. Now, anyone who tries to convince you that, especially in the ancient world, farming, fishing, or shepherding was somehow easy or free, (laughs) that your fruit came for free, I mean, it's complete foolishness. So I think that we in the West probably take this a little bit softer when we read about the heavy burdens that they tie on us. And it's not that they tie heavy burdens on us. That's not the problem. The problem is that they don't do anything to move the burden, which makes you self-righteous. That's the problem. If they don't move the burden, it doesn't mean the burden doesn't need to be moved. And it doesn't mean it shouldn't be you who moves it. I mean... I've been on both sides of this in management where I'm the manager and people think, oh, he doesn't do anything. Why do we have to do all the work? Or I've been doing all the work and I'm like, how come my manager doesn't have to do anything and I have to do all the work? It doesn't matter. Does the work need to be done? Yes. Then why not you? Go do it. Come back when it's done. That's it. Come back when it's done. And whatever you do, please, if you ever have a chance to have coffee with Richard and I, Please do not utter disgusting platitudes about leading by example. Because for us, that's your confession that not only do you want to go to hell, but you want to bring everyone with you. (laughs) So if during that coffee meeting you preach scripture, we'll be happy just to do what you say. But please don't ask us to do what you do. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.